Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Adventures in DevOps. I'm your host, Charles Max Wood. Hopefully, Jeff will show up here in a minute. But in the meantime, uh, I'm here with, do I dare try and say a Polish name? I don't know if I'm that brave. Mikolaj Pavel. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, coming, Miko. Miko, Miko. Game. <laughs> I can I can do that. So, uh, Miko, uh, why don't you just let people know who you are, where you work, why you're famous. <laughs> yeah, all that good stuff. Yeah. Um, so, I guess... You know, the, the most interesting bit is that I wrote a book about chaos engineering. It's called Chaos Engineering Site Reliability Through Control Disruption, a mouthful. And it basically tries to be like an actual, uh, you know, technical book about that stuff rather than just telling you the theory and, you know, that's what you should be doing. It tries to give you like all the tools that you need to to apply that. And like the main gig that you know actually pays my bills, uh, I am a tech lead at Bloomberg. I'm running a little team doing Kubernetes SRE, and uh, mm-hmm. you know trying to kind of uh, make it simpler for other people to deploy their code. I guess that's it. No other claims to fame. <laughs> <laughs> when I went freelance, I was still only a few years into my development career. My first contract, I was paid 60 bucks an hour. Due to feedback from my friends, I raised it to 120 bucks an hour on the next contract. And due to the podcasts I was involved in and the screencasts I had made in the past, I started getting calls from people I'd never even heard of who wanted me to do development work for them because I had done that kind of work or talked about or demonstrated that kind of work in the videos and podcasts that I was making. Within a year, I was able to more than double my freelancing rates, and I had more work than I could handle. If you're thinking about freelancing or have a profitable but not busy or fulfilling freelance practice, let me show you how to do it in my Dev Heroes Accelerator. Dev Heroes aren't just people who devs admire. They're also people who deliver for clients who know, like, and trust them. Let me help you double your income and fill your slowdowns. You can learn more at devheroesaccelerator.com. Yeah, yeah, I uh, I have to say that I actually work with the people that do the make it so you can deploy your code. I don't actually do a whole lot of that. I'm more on the dev end of things, but uh, yeah, it's 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 so nice to have. And uh, yeah, so I, I guess let's just start out talking about what qualifies you then to talk about chaos engineering and the reliability stuff and all this stuff. I mean, is is that your primary focus at work? It sounds like it's more run-of-the-mill uh, ops just to get stuff out. A lot of people like to call themselves SREs, and that's kind of like, you know, different things to different people. I guess I can tell you kind of how I ended up doing this entire chaos engineering thing to begin with. It was, um, you know, not that long ago. I think it was like early 2016, we ended up, starting this new project that was basically you know this platform and we decided to uh, use kubernetes as the scheduling you know layer of that and you know 2021 no one you know gets fired for choosing kubernetes but back then at the time i was pretty fresh that was i think like version 1.2 and you know it was basically a bunch of this moving parts that were fresh uh, out of the box and you needed to configure them and you know put it together in a way that actually works so 
you know, we decided to go with that um, um, as the most promising, you know, kind of option. And uh, we found ourselves with all this moving parts and the need to actually build, you know, some kind of experience with running that and detecting when it breaks mm-hmm. and, you know, how it breaks, where the fragile points are and all of that. So I spent a bunch you know, of time, a couple of years building this out. And uh, one of the things that uh, we tried to basically slowly kind of naturally uh, ended up doing was to just write this simple script that we're either trying to kind of prevent um, the things from breaking in the situations that we expected to happen, you know, some kind of failure. I was running on like a, you know, it still is, uh, running on a private cloud uh, kind of open stack setup so that has its own quirks and stuff so you know basically like slowly accumulating this the scripts to to break different things and verify that they uh the system as a whole continues working and then you know obviously part of that was also when we did detect that something was breaking um you know some kind of condition uh was actually rendering the system unusable we would go and try to simulate that. So just kind of regression test to verify that, you know, the fix that we have keeps working long term. And that mm-hmm. slowly over time evolved into this tool uh, called Powerful Seal that uh, we open sourced and uh, that basically lets you write this kind of more or less sophisticated uh, scenarios in simple YAML files where you can kind of like simulate different uh, things, different failures, and then do validation and stuff like that. And then, you know, somehow, some at some point on that road, we learned that uh, we should be calling that chaos engineering now. And uh, so we started calling this chaos engineering. And then, you know, kind of the rest is history. We ended up doing that more and more because it turned turned out that it has a pretty good return on investment. You know, it's pretty simple to to break things when you have a good idea of what might be might be fragile and verify that, you know, the thing behaves the way you want it to or at least behaves the way that you think it will. So, yeah, and then right. you know, one, so one, one day, are you actually writing out scenarios? Yeah. So, you know, I'm I'm kind of like on the platform level. So there are some scenarios that kind of apply to to the platform. You know, so there is a bunch uh-huh. of things that we want to have, you know, certain guarantees and assumptions about, you know, the control plane of Kubernetes, for example. And then, you know, kind of like the next step on that is to let the clients of the platform use that. And that's where the kind of easy to use a nature of tools like Powerful SEO and a bunch of others. And like a toolkit, allow the users to write their own things and verify assumptions about their applications running. So there's you know different levels that are at play, and that you can kind of you know harvest quite a bit of value just by doing that. I don't know. Is that like the first time you talk about case engineering on this podcast, or am I like number seven? <laughs> um, you, uh... You're not the first. Uh, I think you're the first one that I've talked to about it. Um, just because gotcha. I'm I'm on and off the show, and so I'm not always around for those conversations. But when you're when you're orchestrating this stuff, I mean, usually when I think about chaos engineering, I think about like the the Gremlin stuff that Netflix has talked about, right? So they actually have, I guess, programs that go out, and you never know what's going to go down, right? 
And so yeah. that that's kind of the, that's kind of what I was thinking of here. But it sounds like yours is much more like direct. These are the things we think might happen, and so these are the we we expect the infrastructure to respond in these ways to these particular yeah. things. Yeah. So that's you know kind of like a little bit of an evolution that you know it all started you know with the the chaos monkey and all of a sudden mm-hmm. and it, it was supposed to be called chaos engineering now as opposed to i don't know reliability testing or, or something like that so there is basically this spectrum on one hand you know on one end of that spectrum you have the kind of randomness which is great when you don't really know where to start. So, you know, if you have the system and you don't really know what are the assumptions or what the fragile points might be, it's kind of like akin to fuzzing, you know, mm-hmm. like generating all this like random inputs and, and verifying that things that you didn't think of might be detected. And this is quite powerful because it's like that easy to do, uh, you know, just kind of randomly poke things and see what happens. And also sometimes uh, lets you kind of detect things like, you know, this emergent properties of the system that you didn't think, you know, you didn't Mm -hmm. even know existed, right? Like the collection of of other conditions that work together to produce some behavior that is hard to predict. So that's definitely where the chaos engineering started. And uh, it's still valid, uh, but it's not just, you know, just that. The other end of that spectrum it's kind of when you approach it more like, you know, top bottom, when you have this, um, you know, oftentimes it ends up being, you know, some kind of business objective that gets translated into like an SLO. And then you want to verify that SLO. And that's where, you know, chaos engineering kicks in. And it's very easy most of the time to verify that, you know, within this kind of failures that we see on a regular basis, you know, machines going down, network slowing down, I don't know. Uh, some components restarting or whatever, some kind of recovery, um, we still can hit uh, the SLOs and, mm-hmm. and you know, the, the kind of behavior that you expect kind of verifying. And, you know, applied from this side, it kind of becomes like an extra layer on top of your, you know, usual kind of toolbox of testing. You have your unit tests and integration tests. In unit tests, you, you test small pieces. In integration tests, you, you, you test bigger pieces probably components then you have maybe some kind of end-to-end where you take the whole system and test some kind of happy path and chaos engineering is kind of like end-to-end on steroids where you kind of test the whole system but instead of testing the happy path you you test all kinds of unhappy paths you know right. sad paths <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> yeah there you go yeah so it's kind of like you know both of the sides of the spectrum have applications and uh, a lot of people just think that yeah it's just chaos monkey so it's not that interesting but if you think about it a bit more you know there's nothing preventing you from uh, from kind of finding your happy place uh you know some some somewhere along that spectrum yeah that makes sense um i'm i'm a little curious what kinds of things has this uncovered for you guys like have you found any glaring issues or for the most part, it did, did it just confirm that things mostly work the way you expect? <laughs> I know, uh, so right? Never had any issues. No, not me. Um, <laughs> so this is the kind of like funny. I, I had that. liar on the tip of my tongue for when you said, "Oh, we didn't find anything." <laughs> funny thing about you know chaos engineering is that you know a lot of people when they do that they don't necessarily want to talk about their findings. So. And then, you know, you obviously have employers with their, you know, contracts and stuff that uh, makes it a little bit more tricky. 
there's a few companies that you know are kind of more we have this culture of celebrating their failures it doesn't necessarily apply everywhere everywhere i can't really you know give you too many details but i, I can tell you that um especially at the beginning when we're setting these things up there was hardly an experiment that would uh, you know 100 percent confirm the, <laughs> the expectations that we had and then you know, obviously <laughs> over time over time, it gets better and better. But yeah, I think like you know, when you're starting with that, there isn't that much that you need to uh, you know typically do in terms of this experiments to discover some funny things. So you know, it's 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 often very stupid things, and you know, you, you expect that you know the system ah it's so solid, and then all of a sudden it turns out that you know if you have like this component that restarts too many times, it stops restarting. There's one of those things I think I can talk about that because it's in the book. You know, like the system D by the default when you put uh, the restart on always. Um, like the other default parameters um, mean that I think if you restart more than five times within 10 seconds, it just stops restarting. And uh, that's like, you know, very, very simple thing when you know about that. Uh, but uh, if you go into the wild and you, and, you, and you to take a look at some, you know, open source things and how they set up their systemd services, mm-hmm. you're going to find a bunch of things that don't have it. And I mean, they have it on default, so they're susceptible to that. So, you know, experiment verifying this can be uh, three lines of bash and can potentially, you know, avert a a massive problem because it might be something else causing the restart that doesn't normally happen. And then boom, all all of a sudden your instances are down and, you know, you get cold and it gets unpleasant. So... Yeah, the low-hanging fruit is typically nice to harvest and takes minutes to set up once you've you know made the effort to actually go there. So that's kind of like a cool thing about chaos engineering. Yeah, that makes sense. I kind of imagine it as, you know, we think of it as a stack, right? And so there are different layers to the application. There's different layers uh, within the infrastructure. And yeah, you don't know where things don't quite meet up and where there could be wobble in the system, right? And what you're trying to avoid is having the whole thing fall over. And so, yeah, you know, you, you find a little piece here. Oh, this is misconfigured or this is, you know, has the default settings in it, which is the example you gave, right? And we, we need something maybe a little bit more refined to kind of fill in some of those gaps, not necessarily because we think we can get all of the wobble out of the system, but if we shore up this gap, this gap, and this gap, then the whole thing's less likely to come crashing down. Yeah, and you know the example that I gave you, it's kind of an actual bug, you know, if you think about that. But there's also a bunch of things that you can do at the kind of runtime side of things when resources get saturated, you know, when you run out of, uh, you know, disk or RAM or CPU gets slower, and all of a sudden you start skipping requests because you have some contact, some kind of timeout that's missed. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of those things, even if all of your tests pass in isolation, then uh, simulating simple conditions like, for example, someone stealing half of your CPUs on on the machine can also help. And it's, once again, like super easy to do and um, makes you much more confident about running the system long term. And, you know, the, the whole experimentation is really there to improve that confidence, make right. you sleep better at night, yeah? <laughs> So I guess 
I mean, every system's different, right? And the process of setting something like this up and letting it run, it seems like for everything you add to your app or everything you add to your system, you're adding another thing that you both have to configure within your chaos engineering stack, as well as, you know, keep track of the interplay now. So you have essentially exponential additions to what it can affect and what can affect it. So how do you start looking at a system and going, okay, I don't have anything like this yet, but I want to make sure that we're, you know, we are filling in some of these holes, right? We're, we're handling some of these things so that we can at least diagnose them if we can't exactly fix them ahead of time. Like, how do you get started with chaos engineering in a complex system? I would say there's probably a few ways. Uh, I think a lot of, if this is like an existing system that's been there for a while, you can get a lot of mileage just by looking at the previous outages. And that gives you an indication of the kind of problems that, you know, might have been fixed already or might not mm. have. So that typically points you to some fragile elements in the system and uh, so there's that then you know obviously you can go kind of the academic way and just look at the diagrams and try to think of the places where things might be bottlenecks and kind of apply a little pressure there that may or may not be the easiest way depending on you know how well the system is designed how good of an idea you have of how things actually work and you know kind of like your personal style and then the third kind of approach is going back to that fuzzing and uh, the, the randomness that mm-hmm. you know, just starting by, if you have like a bunch of microservices, for example, you have a lot of different conditions that might happen just because you restarted them at random intervals and you start some kind of monkey and all of a sudden turns out that actually the retries are not working the way you expected them. So, you know, it's kind of like there isn't really like a silver bullet uh, like you said, every system is different, so whatever flows your boat is going to work for you uh, the best. But yeah, there's a bunch of different approaches that I can recommend. You know, from the tip of my head. Um, what What are some of those approaches? Yeah, because it sounds like some of the fuzzing and you know the 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 random nature of it. I mean, that makes sense. Yeah, you know, once you start getting in beyond that, you know, you start hitting some of the things that have happened in the past. Yeah, you start looking at this and start, you know, setting up these systems. Yeah, how do you how do you start identifying what you're going to test first or what interactions between services you're going to test or things like that? Well, just kind of like I said, you know, either this you try to start from the theory and then you apply it to practice okay. and just kind of identify the things that look like there might be weak links. May may not be the the setting up these experiments is typically very cheap. So, if okay. you set up an experiment and it works great, then whoa, great, right? And mm-hmm. uh, and uh, you know, kind of going from the previous uh, problems, that's also a good way. So yeah, I, I'm, well, I said that the three approaches. It's probably like this kind of like randomness or the previous mm-hmm. things, or just kind of starting from theory and and looking okay. at these things, you know, from theoretical point of view. I, I guess the other question that I have is, let's say that I have a somewhat complex system, and for whatever reason, we throw another element into the mix, right? So maybe we add another microservice, or maybe we add a another database system or data collection system that is uh, somewhat core to the 
to the setup? How, how do you start approaching things like that? Because it could ca- have cascading issues, right? Yeah. Or it could turn out that it kind of acts as a surrogate between two things that already exist that might already be tested. Yeah. Or, you know, so there are a lot of different ways where it, that it could fit into the system. And all of those are going to affect how we test that. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, it kind of goes to the question of uh, whether you should be doing these experiments kind of on an ongoing basis. Like, you know, in the example of testing some kind of SLO that you, you know, you you hit the system as a black box and you verify that you get the response within Mm -hmm. X milliseconds, 99th percentile, whatever. And then you uh, apply different failures inside uh, to verify that, you know, for this kind of failure, you still hit the SLO. So if you do this kind of thing and on an ongoing basis, then you have this kind of like built-in regression testing framework, right? So if you throw a, throw in a new component and you change something in a component or you replace one, then that's kind of nice and covered because you already, you know, the, the kind of the main characteristic of the system that you're interested in, in my example, you know, that response time, um, you test in that uh, and you can replace the, the guts, right? If you're Mm -hmm. not doing that and you're doing kind of like ad hoc testing, then, um, you know, you're kind of more in the woods. Uh, But then again, you know, that kind of depends on what you're testing, obviously. So if you change the component and the component has the same criteria, you can probably use the experiments. If you're changing a component because you want to change the behavior of the system, you're going to have to, you know, readapt your your experiments. So. You know, it's like there's been like apart from you know just doing chaos monkey, there's really no kind of escaping the fact that you do need to have a good grasp of what the system is doing if you go looking into you know the details and how it behaves, right? So, yeah, yeah, kind of unfortunately, no silver bullets, just yeah, kind of a tool in your toolbox. No, that makes sense. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or If you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. One other question that I have for you as far as your setup um, with some of the things that you've done is do you try and create some kind of like staging or mirror system for production? Or do you actually run these tests against production? The favorite question in everybody's gotcha. Yeah, so... <laughs> Either I way, you're think, doing it wrong. Yeah, if, you, if you're not <laughs> doing that in production, that you're not doing chaos engineering. Yeah, I think that's, that, that's very wrong. It's like, it's like saying that, you know, because you do this and it's nice and flashy, then all of a sudden you have a license to kill and you should go and throw away all of the like good development practices out of the window and go to prod. Yeah, obviously, you know, if you think about it, like from by definition, everything that you test in other stages is some kind of approximation, right? Uh, so all the testing that you do, before it's not perfect but there is a reason why we have the stages right and there's right. a reason why you what when you deploy your software you don't just throw it out into production immediately there's it's not very different uh for from chaos engineering so it's absolutely not true that you know if you don't do it in production then it's not chaos engineering 
obviously the holy grail is that your systems are so stable and you're so confident in them and you're doing so great and you've tested in all the previous stages that you can actually go and do this kind of thing live but that's obviously not going to apply to everybody if you're running i don't know medical equipment then <laughs> you don't want to kill people uh, just to detect uh, problems if you if you can get away with a problem that didn't cause an outage yeah, there are legitimate use cases where it just doesn't make sense to do that. But there is plenty of other use cases when it does make sense. And, you know, kind of detecting kind of failing early versus failing, failing late is uh, preferable because it costs less money. So, you know, if you're serving videos of cats on the internet, that's probably, um, you know, less problematic. So, you know, that's kind of like an all long answer to the question. But the short of it is that, you know, if you can do it in production, that's great. But if you can't, well, definitely don't start it. And if you can't, there's plenty of value to be harvested from from testing that in different stages. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, usually what I find with my experimentations with some of this is the the things you can't simulate in, um, in, in scaling as easily are scale and load. Right. Yeah. So, so you're staging your system. You know, you just don't have millions of records in your database. You can put them in, but then you still don't get to see how it behaves under load because it's not. And you can try and simulate oh. the load, but that's hard. Yeah. And even if you had a perfect copy, uh, then you know the the the, the kind of data, the, the kind of patterns mm-hmm. of users. That's you know that's that's why I said that you know by definition you can never really fully perfectly uh, test all the things before they hit production, and you know that's why when we release code, typically you're not going to just flip a switch and put all the traffic through the new version. You're probably going right. to release slowly and you know some kind of percentage and and stuff like that. So you know the industry has been working on making these things less scary, and uh, there's no reason to throw them out of the window just because you're doing chaos engineering now. <laughs> yep. Uh, one other thing that I'm a little curious about is just because we've talked a lot about writing these experiments, and I guess I just figured, um, you know, you have it hit the system one way or another, and then you look for a certain kind of response. And I was just thinking in terms of like, it sends back the right data or something like that. But it it occurred to me that there may be other things that you're looking for. You know, you keep talking about SLOs, which is usually performance related, not necessarily, did I get the right data back? So what what kinds of signals are you looking for out of the chaos engineering besides maybe production or uh, correct data and performance? Yeah, so that's, that's precisely right, you know, the, the kind of correctness of your data that typically gets caught earlier on. Mm-hmm. Um, well, usually your, you do that in software tests, not your yeah. chaos tests. So what gets interesting is when you're kind of on the verge of the performance and kind of degraded performance in presence of things. So mm-hmm. you know, when you do like typical performance testing, you're going to run some kind of benchmarks and and you you verify and you you know you run your numbers and you sound all smart and makes for a nice presentation and it's great and case engineering is kind of more focused on doing that while other things are happening so you know if you say you know you have n copies of your thingy i know some kind of api you have let's say mm-hmm. you have n copies of that 
then what's interesting is not necessarily just benchmarking that well while they're all up, but benchmarking that and seeing what happens when you you know take some of them down, for example, whether the load balancing works the way that you think it does, whether it's gonna go high wire and it's gonna drop some requests, or you know it works like you expected and it's all transparent to the client, whether you know it degrades by the amount that you expected to. Yeah, so it's kind of like a mix of, you know, in- introducing this this new conditions that you reasonably expect, and at the same time looking at both, you know, the correctness, but less in the unit test kind of way, and more like you know in this kind of dynamic runtime um, mm-hmm. way and the performance. So it's kind of like a nice thing about this that you you get to do like a, a mix of different things you need to understand a little bit the benchmarking you need to understand the you know the underlying os limitations and you need to understand you know different stacks this is also kind of cool that you know you, you work with well, like for me for example i work with different stacks different languages different like techniques and different schools of thought and you know when you actually go and test them like that it doesn't matter that much what they're made of <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> because you can you can verify how they behave although you know the caveat to that is that obviously the better you know the stacks the the more easy for you it is to gather good metrics because right. all of that only makes sense if you have good observability you know if you can reliably measure things otherwise you're just kind of playing around and it's not really science more more of kind of art so kind of like a mix and i i like the the aspect of this mixing all these things keeps it you know interesting one other thing that i'm a little curious about is let's say that you get the experiment right so you're getting back whatever signal it is and you know it took this long or you know you've mentioned ram you've mentioned you know, CPU, and you probably have instrumentation on your Kubernetes cluster, your Docker container, your servers, or whatever you're testing, right, to get all that data back. Let's say that you find something, right? So your chaos engineering comes back, and it shows that under certain circumstances or under certain load or whatever you're throwing at this machine, that it uncovers a problem. And when we talk about DevOps, a lot of times we're not just talking about the technology, right? We're not just talking about oh, we've got this stack and it does this thing. DevOps is a culture that includes people. And so when you find something, who do you tell? How do you communicate about it? What kinds of things do you pull together to solve the problem? Because I'm assuming that some of the problems as ops folks, you can just solve them, right? You just, you know, tune your Kubernetes cluster or something. Um, But for others, it might be application focused. Um, maybe it's even business focused. Hey, we just need to be able to handle more load. How, how do you approach that? It's a funny, fun one because you know you can often kind of sound like you detect all these problems and then you go and tell people about that. So I guess you know the answer is that it's going to depend very much on how your team or company is structured. For us, mm-hmm. when we detect these problems, more. Like I, I found that often you're going to have to to like properly nail the 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 issue. You're still gonna probably have to look into how it's made and what it's made of. So you can give people like pretty uh, detailed feedback on okay, we found this problem with this here. But that's because you know I just t- happen to work on the platform, and that's why I run other people's code and. That's mm-hmm. why you know I stare at these graphs and uh, and and try to detect when things don't necessarily go the way that I would like them to, or they don't just look wrong, right? 
So that that's one thing. But there's nothing you know preventing just like directly application developers from doing the same thing and finding the bugs in their software and you know right. maybe not necessarily the bugs but you know kind of problems in their stuff. So you know it really depends because like you know it's kind of like. One of the things that I try to do with that book is kind of show that it's not just for like SREs responsible mm-hmm. for platforms or whatnot, that the same kind of way of thinking applies on all kinds of level of levels of the stack. So yeah, I'm, I'm starting from like very low level, like blocking syscalls and, and verifying that, you know, your black box or some kind of legacy stuff that you don't even know how it's written behaves the way you think it behaves in, in problem with failures. And then, you know, kind of building up through like Docker, understanding how that works and how that breaks and what the limitations might be through like JVM application level when you build the, the experiment directly into the code of your application, all the way up to like, writing snippets of javascript to put in your you know chrome console to verify that uh for example if i add some network slowness simulate some network slowness slowness the the ui keeps working and you know so it really like depends very much on where you're starting uh but that's also kind of you know a, a powerful aspect of that that it really can work on all those different layers. So I know that's not particularly satisfactory answer to that, <laughs> but that's kind of like, you know, how I see that. No, that makes sense. I guess what I was driving at is what kind of data do you find is helpful for the, you know, maybe the engineers and what kind of data do you find is typically more useful for the ops folks and things like that? Because, I mean, just my my full-time job, I'm I'm writing web apps, right? And so mm-hmm. if you come to me and you say, I detected a slowdown here and here, that's less helpful than if you come to me and say, I, I did this kind of a thing and it caused this kind of a slowdown and, and that doesn't meet our SLOs, um, yeah. right? So, so I guess that's what I'm aiming at is, you know, what kinds of things are you telling different groups as far as, hey, this is the data that I've gathered and this is what, I, you know, what the experiment is and so this is the result. Yeah, so, you know, like, kind of like you said, I just always try to give folks as much information as I can mm-hmm. so that they can reproduce. Sometimes it's straightforward. Uh, you know, sometimes I can literally give them a snippet and, and reproduce that. But sometimes right. it takes, uh, you know, a lot of time from like fighting an issue to be able to reproduce that. So I they have to kind of do it themselves and <laughs> be like, oh, yeah, this looks wrong. Uh, here's the graph. Look at it. Try to figure out what you did wrong there. So, you know, I guess it kind of really depends. Uh, it's, so you know, in, in a lot of these platforms, you have few people who manage a platform that runs like hundreds of different people's code, right? So you can't necessarily spend the time on, on every one of them to, to debug. Uh, so you have to draw the line sometimes. And I'm kind of trying to avoid prescribing where that line should be, you know, kind of depends on what makes sense for you right all right well uh we're kind of getting toward the end of our time you want to tell people where to get this book yeah so if you go to manning.com or like uh, and just look for chaos engineering uh, that's where mm-hmm. you can order it i think it's supposed to hit amazon by the end of the month you know COVID didn't help with any of these delays so <laughs> actual, 
uh, actual printed copy from Amazon. Right now, you can order that directly from the publisher. Otherwise, if you you know are looking for a resource to to get uh, some good links and some good tools and stuff like that, there is an awesome case engineering list of, on GitHub. That's uh, pretty good. Probably like the best resource uh, when you want a list of links. And uh, otherwise, uh, I also uh, invite you to go to caseengineering.news, uh, which is my newsletter, if you'd like to hear a bit more directly from me about case engineering in general. How's that, that sound? Sounds good. Um, I've actually got a code that gives people, I think it's 35 or 40% off, pretty much anything on Manning. So I'll make sure we have the link in there, and I'll make sure that we also uh, have that coupon code up so that people can go and get the book and get a good size discount on it. Sounds great. Hey, folks, I don't know if you've noticed, but I've been working a lot on figuring out how to help people become the most valuable developers on their teams or becoming the top 5% of developers in the field. If you're looking to level up, figure out how to contribute more, get the career you want, get the career that you want that will support the lifestyle you want, then you should check out the Most Valuable Dev Summit. I've invited some of my friends across the community, people that you've heard of, people that have worked on systems that you use on a daily basis, people who have invented new ways of doing things over the years in programming, and I've asked them one question, and that question is, how do you become a top 5% developer? How do you become one in 20 of the best developers out there? And so we're going to go ahead and have that conversation with them in interviews on the Most Valuable Dev Summit, and you can find that at summit.mostvaluable.dev. All right, well, let's go ahead and jump into picks. Now, you said you went and listened to some of our episodes, so I'm going to assume you know what picks are, but I'm going to go first anyway um, and just throw out some picks. First of all, I live in the United States, and I realize that this is probably going to come out in like a month. Um, so it's it's not going to be as timely as it is, but it's, it's what I've been thinking about lately. And... Uh, it's essentially just centered around a lot of the political anxiety that's out there within the United States. And I haven't really made any bones about what I think, right? People know where I come down politically. But at the end of the day, there are a lot of people that are really angry about a lot of stuff. And I really just hope that people can just sit down and just think and talk and come to understand each other, right? Because I've, I've talked to people that I agree with politically. I totally get where they're coming from. I talk to people who I don't agree with politically. And usually they're hearing something different from what I'm hearing on a regular basis. And so given what they're hearing, I kind of get where they're coming from too, right? And I feel like, I, I don't know if it would solve all the problems, but it would go a long, long way toward making a lot of this a lot easier to stomach and swallow and deal with if we just kind of understood where we're coming from, where where the other side is coming from. And so I'm just going to encourage people, if you get a chance to sit down and just say, okay, you know, I'm, you know, politically right or left or whatever, right? And you're politically the other thing. Why don't you explain to me why your side is so angry? Why don't you explain to me why your site is so whatever? And then just listen, right? Don't try and defend the, you know, the politicians or the decisions or whatever that you agree with. Just listen. Just just see where they're coming from. And what you find is that 
um, the different sites tend to focus on different details of the same thing. And so, you know, what I find is that the people I talk to that just really are ticked off and angry about something that Donald Trump did or didn't do or, or the other side, you know, the other way around, you're missing some form of context, right? It doesn't always make it okay, but it makes it, you know, it makes it understandable why people are responding the way that they are. So anyway, I'm, I'm really going to encourage people to just, just talk to each other. And, and then uh, the other uh, pick that I have, um, lately I've been listening to uh, a number of podcasts, but one that I really like is called Writing Excuses. And it's by Brandon Sanderson, Dan Wells, uh, what's her name? Uh, Robinette Kowal. I can't remember her first name for some reason. Randy Taylor. But Brandon Sanderson's one of my favorite authors, hands down, all time. And uh, anyway, they've had Patrick Rothfuss on a couple of times to to talk about different aspects of writing um, fiction. And I really loved his books. He's He's got two books out. Um, one of them is... Uh, the Name of the Wind, and the other one is... I can't remember the second book's name. But anyway, they're terrific books. Um, so I've really enjoyed his books. So I'm going to pick those. And I'm also going to shout out about writing excuses. Um, I still haven't gotten around to listening to Brandon's latest book from Stormlight Archives, but I'm really looking forward to it. I started uh, Wheel of Time, and that's an endeavor that takes me months to get through. And so since I'm book on book 11 of 13 or... 12 of 14 or however the anyway yeah i'm almost done so i'm just going to finish it and then go listen to the starting with way of kings for brandon sanderson but yeah uh really enjoying that so i'm going to pick that and, and i'll put all the links in the show notes so you can go find all these books how about you do you have some picks for us i have to say i didn't really prepare any and uh, it's um you know i'm not as up to date with um, you know, the political situation in the u.s being a little bit oh don't worry about it it'll, it'll only make you mad <laughs> so yeah i don't think i have any sorry no it's all good i mean usually i'm looking for like uh a good tv or movie uh referral like just something you really love you think everybody ought to know about because i'm always looking for that next show do you have anything like that not so much but um you know the thing that is kind of on my mind right now is uh the kind of climate change uh actual looking into the numbers so you know i realized not that long ago that i wasn't as educated in that aspect as i wanted to so i spent a bunch of time just trying to like dig down to actual data of how much of the you know the, the uh, gases we release into the atmosphere and uh, what we could do to prevent that from happening and what's likely to happen if we do continue the same path and you know, it's kind of like similar to what you were talking, different people have the different eco chambers and probably depending on who you sp speak to and where they live, you're going to have very different approaches ranging from, you know, people who don't think it's a problem to people who are very conscious about that. And I think that, you know, we kind of owe that to ourselves to at least make an educated opinion on that. And uh, the data is there. So, uh, if I was to give like a pick, I would probably recommend actually, you know, looking at these numbers and seeing, um, you know, what you can do uh, to kind of, you know, do your part in that. Yeah. And, and that's another place that, again, you know, yeah, dive in, understand it, right? Instead of going off of, because I, I mean, here in the US, it's a hot button issue. 
And, uh, you know, I've, I've looked at some of the science. It seems to back it up. I've looked at some of the science that I think is a little bit iffy, but at least I've spent some time trying to understand it. Right. And then when I talk to people, I can talk to people intelligently about it and, and actually have a basis. In fact, instead of, Oh, well this, uh, talking head on TV said this thing. Right. So, yeah. And, you know, the maths is fairly easy. You need to be able to, like, multiply and compare numbers. So it doesn't take that much effort, but it completely changes, you know, the conversation from kind of being about opinions to just being about some of the things that we know and some of the bad things that can happen if we don't do anything. All right, cool. Well, if you have some favorite resources, uh, go ahead and put them in the chat and we'll get them listed out. And then, yeah, we'll go ahead and wrap it up here. Thanks. This was fun. Yeah, thanks. I had a blast. Thanks for having me. All right, folks. Catch you later. And until next time, Max out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit dot com to learn more.